Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. Good morning, High Point family. It's good to be with you this morning. I pray that you're all doing well. I further pray that these online messages that we have been giving you throughout this very interesting time are blessing you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are missed. The staff and I are excited about the time where we can get together again and worship God together publicly in this building. We believe it's going to happen sooner than later, and we thank God for that. But we thank God for you, and thanks for tuning in with us this morning. Today we're going to continue in our series called The Standard, where we are studying Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And as I've said so many times before, this is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, and it is as relevant today as it was over 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke these words. It's a sermon that literally changed our world. Because the Christian characteristics that Jesus presents within this message, when applied to our daily living, it literally changes the environment in which we live. And speaking of that statement, changing the world, I'm reminded of a time back in in 1903 when two brothers named Wilbur and Orville Wright, better known as the Wright brothers, literally changed our world. And they did so when they flew a a flimsy little airplane in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. To make that happen, however, to get that plane off of the ground, these two brothers had to meet two requirements. First of all, there were lots of things that they needed to know. They had to learn about lift. They had to learn about thrust and about drag and stuff like that. They had to figure out the math of how all the wings were supposed to work, and they did. And by using this wind tunnel invention that they created, they learned that the wing of a plane divides the air that flows over it. When this happens, the pressure beneath the wing is increased and the pressure above is reduced. That's why if you can pull or push a wing forward fast enough, you get the lift that is necessary in order to lift an airplane. Thanks to Google, I found the exact formula that they discovered. Lift equals coefficient times density times velocity squared divided by two multiplied by the wing area. (laughs) It's a pretty impressive formula that makes absolutely no sense to me. But that leads me to the Wright brothers' second requirement. Simply learning and knowing all of of these aerodynamic principles wasn't enough. In order to fly, these brothers had to do something. They had to act uh, on this new obtained knowledge that they had received. They had to build the plane using the right materials. They had to design an engine because the automakers didn't make one that was strong enough and yet light enough to work on this airplane. They they needed to come up with something on their own. They had to equip their plane with the necessary controls, controls that they had to learn themselves to use. And I mention this because in order for us to elevate to new heights of spiritual maturity, it requires the same two things. If a Christian is to become more and more like Jesus, then there is both information we need to know and there are things that we need to do. In fact, Jesus arranged these Beatitudes in this way. The first four Beatitudes are things that growing Christians, something we have to know. The next four deal with what Christians have to do. So far, we've looked at 
No attitudes, K-N-O-W, knowledge attitudes. But from now on, we are studying do attitudes, meaning that these things have to be acted upon. And when we combine the two, we participate in the Beatitudes. That's when we take on the attitudes of Christ, of being and doing like Jesus did. And it's important to point out that our spiritual growth is, is exactly like that. It requires action. It requires active participation on our part in order to become Christ-like. And so that brings us to this morning's uh, do attitude, if you will. It's based upon the truth that our Lord is merciful. In Psalm 145.8, it says, God is kind and merciful, slow to anger, and full of love. So part of spiritual growth is imitating our Lord in this way, being Christians who are merciful Christians. I like how Chrysostom, the early church leader, put it. He said, mercy imitates God and disappoints the devil. And by the way, the writer of Lamentations reminds us that God is always showing us mercy. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it begins by saying his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Now, the English word new is the Hebrew word hadas. It means never before experienced. That tells us that the mercy of God given to us every day is a different form of mercy that he gave us yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. In the same way that we find the seasonal flu vaccines that they give us every year change from year to year, God's mercy, mercies change from day to day. Every morning we get a new strain of mercy. And you may ask why. Well, it's because every single day is different. On a daily basis, we do not respond to situations in the exact same way. And we also don't fall into sin every day in the exact same way. What I mean is I might be selfish over something today and be selfish over something totally different tomorrow. I might covet one thing tomorrow and something else next week. So God's mercies are just like the scripture says, they are new every morning. Let me help you to put this into perspective. Try this little exercise. Figure out how old you are today, not in years, but days. And that calculation will give you a total sum of the different mercies that you've received in your life, the mercies that are new every morning. For example, if you're 50 years old today, I'll kind of go to the middle of the road there, that means that God has blessed you with at least 18,250 unique mercies. Now, doesn't that make you want to be more merciful? I'm reminded of the words in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. No matter what your age, God has shown you His mercy literally thousands upon thousands of times, day after day after day. And that knowledge, it should literally compel us to want to obey the second part of that verse. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So having said all that, let's move forward in our study of these Beatitudes. I'd like you to take your Bibles and follow along with me. We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Today's scripture reference is going to be verse 7, but in order to kind of give us a, a feel for moving from knowing to doing, I want to start back at verse 1. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1. Today I'll be reading from the New King James Version. The scriptures read, and seeing the multitudes, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. 
Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In today's scripture, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So the question that I want to address with you this morning is how does this particular beatitude unfold in the life of a growing Christian? Because remember, we are now going from knowing to doing, or I guess to put it in another way, how, what, or excuse me, what does mercy look like? Well, a great place, I think, to find answers to that question is in the book of, of Luke chapter 10. In, in chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus tells us that famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And this uh, familiar story gives us a picture of mercy. It provides us with a great example of mercy that is in action. I'm sure you know it, but I'd like to take your Bibles and follow along with me to, to Luke chapter 10. Uh, in verse 30, if you look, in verse 30 and following, Jesus tells a story. He tells us about a Jewish man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him lying on the side of the street half dead. Well, along comes a priest, but this priest decides to cross over to the other side of the road and he just kept on walking. Followed by that was a Levite who came by, and he did the exact same thing. So we have two religious leaders here, two men who know better, who, who supposedly know God well, who simply ignored this man's need. But then a very surprising thing happens. A, a Samaritan, who is a sworn enemy, by the way, of the Jews, he came by. And with his response, his, his actions this Samaritan showed us the four dimensions of this particular lesson this morning. Do you remember Jesus' question at the end of this parable? He said to his listeners, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? Well, the expert of the law said, he responded, he said, the one who had shown mercy on him. In essence, Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Ding, ding, ding. You get the, you get the prize. But he said, now go and do the same. We can uh, see this first dimension of mercy in verse 33 where it says this, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the wounded man was, and when he saw him, dot, dot, dot. Now at this point, the story teaches us where mercy begins. It's what I would call a God-empowered perception. This is always the first step of, of actually uh, acting out this, this beatitude. Because first of all, mercy sees. Mercy sees what's going on around us. In this particular and very familiar parable, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan all saw this wounded man, but only one of them perceived him as a human being worthy of stopping and giving him his time and his help. Only one began the process of mercy. Only one of them acted upon it. The priest and the Levite only saw just like they saw the other countless people who were downtrodden. You see, going up that road from Jericho to Jerusalem was extremely dangerous. I've even read that today it's still a very unpleasant road that is littered with burned out cars. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's what I read. But it was a road that had lots of bends where robbers could hide. The hills were pocketed with little caves in which murderers and thieves could hang out. 
So I don't think this poor Jewish traveler was the only victim that these religious men had ever seen as they walked down that road. I imagine they did a lot of crossing over to the other side of the road as to avoid other poor travelers. To them, the Jew in this story was just another victim. They saw him as nothing more than another beaten down traveler. But the Samaritan, he saw something that they couldn't. He saw something that they wouldn't. He saw a human being. He saw a person who was in need. And that seeing prompted him to be merciful, to turn aside, and to help this man. So seeing, guys, is, is a very, very important element to the Christian life. You know, there are a lot of people who love to go to thrift stores and yard sales and garage sales. Every weekend, they scan the internet and the newspapers, and they look for where these sales are going to be, and they make a plan to get up early on a Saturday morning and, and plan to attend. When they get to these sales, they see things that the rest of us don't. We see what appears to be a beat-up coffee table selling for about $10, and then we walk on by. But these thrift buyers, they see a mid-century work of art. So they stop, and they buy it, and they clean it up, and they sell it on Craigslist the next weekend for $100. What we see as a stained chair, these thrift buyers see as a masterpiece of, of furniture design, something worth much more than what they're paying for it at that yard sale price. We see a pile of old clothes, and they see within that pile a perfectly good-as-new outfit for their children or for their grandchildren. They have better sight. They have better vision than I do. Well, to embrace this truth from Jesus' beatitude, we need better eyesight. We need to be able to see the masterpiece that is in every person that God ever created. We need to be able to see beyond their sin. We need to be to see beyond the consequences of their sin and see a person that was made in the image of Christ and God himself. Because that kind of vision prompts us to, to turn aside from the things that we are doing and to get involved. You know, here in Tehama County, we especially need to learn this principle of spiritual maturity because so often we are blind to the hurting people around us, myself included. We ride around in our cars every day and we never make eye contact with the people who are around us. We can live next door to people and, and they're like stranger, strangers to us because we never allow ourselves to get to know them, to get involved in their lives. I remember the first house that we moved into here when we moved to Red Bluff. In one year's time before we ended up buying the house that we're living in now, we only got to know the lady across the street and the guy to the right of us whose name I don't even remember. We often fail that way, don't we? We do. We don't make it our business to see and to hear the needs of the people who are in the crowds around us. Again, we, we, we get ourselves so busy with, with everyday life and we put our own needs ahead of others. We all struggle. We all struggle from time to time with what's been called the disease of me. I've shared this story with you before about Irma Bombeck, but I believe it's worth uh, re revisiting. She shares a story about a time when she was waiting for a flight at an airport. She had had a, a crazy week and she just wanted to get away. She was reading a book in an effort to shut out the commotion that was going, around, going on around her when she wrote this. A voice next to me belonging to an elderly woman said, I bet it's cold in Chicago. Stone-faced, I replied, she said, it's likely. I haven't been to Chicago in three years, the elderly woman persisted. My son lives there. That's nice, I said. 
my eyes intent on my book. After a few quiet moments, the woman said, my husband's body is on this plane. I'm taking him to be buried. We've been married 53 years. Irma Bombeck continued, I don't think I ever detested myself more than I did at that moment. Another human being was screaming to be heard and in desperation had turned to a cold stranger who was more interested in a novel than in the real-life drama at her elbow. She talked numbly and steadily until we boarded the plane, then found her seat in another section. As I hung up my coat, I heard her plaintive voice say to her seat companion, I bet it's cold in Chicago. Are you sensitive to God's still small voice in your heart? A voice that alerts you about people like this woman? Do you notice the needs of people around you? Or do your hurting neighbors and co-workers watch you as a person who claims to know Jesus do like the guys in our story and walk by the other side? Well, here's a simple prayer that I think every one of us should pray every day. Lord, help me to see people through your eyes. And we really got to mean this prayer when we say it because it's the first step in becoming the kind of Christian who is blessed, the kind of person who has uh, God's merciful approval on our life. Well, here's a second characteristic about mercy. Mercy feels. Jesus tells us in this, in this parable that all three of these men saw the need, but only the Samaritan actually felt the need. In verse 33, it says, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this word that we translate as pity or compassion literally means to have intensity in the intestines. One of the, one of the uh, scriptures translations said he had pity. The one I'm reading from today said he had compassion. But it literally means to have intensity in the intestines. And I think that sounds odd to us, but people in Jesus' day believed that the seat of human emotions was not the heart, but in the digestive area of the body. And this idea is captured in Matthew chapter 14, 14, where it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word compassion here means that Jesus was so moved in his stomach and it churned or literally his bowels yearned for that crowd. And we still talk this way today when you think about it, because uh, when we are nervous, we say things like, I have butterflies in my stomach. We say things like, he or she hates my guts, or I've got this gut feeling that this is what I'm supposed to do. Last week, when I shared the story with you about the little girl and her mom who were trapped in that nine-story apartment complex that, that collapsed during an earthquake, you remember the mom who, who cut her finger and gave her daughter her blood to drink in order to satisfy her thirst. Well, since you were watching from home, I wonder how many of you kind of gasped I wonder how, how it might even have made some of you feel sick to your stomach. I don't know. But if, you di if it did, I like to think that that is more than just nausea. For me, the thought of that little girl being, thirst that, being that thirsty emotionally affected me right down to the pit of my gut. And maybe you felt that way too. I don't know. Well, whatever body word or body part word picture that, that you use, here's what Jesus is saying. That Samaritan in the story that we've read was moved emotionally. He was moved internally deep enough 
to, to meet the needs of this wounded Jewish man. Let me put it this way. He was shaken up when he saw the man who was beaten down. And this is another part of embracing this particular beatitude. We notice needy people, and then we are moved internally with compassion for them. Someone put it this way, mercy begins when your heart comes into my heart. By the way, the Hebrew word for mercy is chesed. It means so much more than just to sympathize with another person. It's not simply feeling sorry for someone who's in trouble, not at all. It, 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 Chezed means uh, the ability to get inside another person's skin. I think another good word would be empathy. And get in, in their skin in such a way that we can see things through their eyes, that we can, we can think things through their mind, and, and we can feel things through their own personal feelings. See, the mercy that we're talking about here today is so much more than just an emotional wave of pity that we feel. It's an internal identification with the, with the person's pain hurting along with them. Pastor Matt Chandler wrote about a time when he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman uh, named Kim to a Christian concert. Matt was hopeful that Kim would come to know Christ that evening. However, what he said is that it became a train wreck. I'm going to read to you what he said. He said, the preacher took the stage and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics about sexually transmitted diseases. There was a lot of, you don't want syphilis, do you? His big illustration was to take out a single red rose. He smelled the rose, dramatically caressed its petals, and talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. Then he threw the rose out into the crowd and he encouraged everyone to pass it around. As he neared the end of his message, he asked for the rose back, but by now it was broken and drooping and the petals were falling off. He held up this now ugly rose for all to see and his big finish was this. Now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone, he said, were merciless. His essential message which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to a world of sinners was this. Hey, don't be a dirty rose. Well, Matt goes on to say that he didn't hear from Kim for a couple weeks until one day her mother called him to inform that Kim had been in an accident. So this pastor immediately went to the hospital. And he said that in the middle of their conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, Kim says to him, do you think I'm a dirty rose? Matt says, my heart sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is Jesus wants the rose. It is Jesus' desire to save and redeem and restore the dirty rose. I told her we all sin. We are all dirty roses. But God loves us anyway. Do you see the mercy in the actions of that pastor? He heard in his gut. His heart sank with what happened, what was said in front of this girl. And he realized that this preacher made this girl feel horrible. It hurt him that this young lady who he had hoped would find Christ was hurt herself. It hurt him that she felt like she was a quote-unquote dirty rose. Well, let me ask you, how are you doing when it comes to this second aspect of mercy? Does your heart break for broken people? As I asked a couple weeks back in one of my messages, do you weep? With the weeping, do you feel the pain of other people? Do you grieve for people who have made sinful choices? 
We can't say that we embrace this particular beatitude or claim to be merciful unless we do. But we're not done yet. Mercy doesn't stop there. Yes, it sees, and secondly, it feels, but then it does this. Mercy acts. It's an action word. This is where we see the division of these beatitudes because the merciful person does more than feel. They act practically in an effort to relieve the distress. In verse 34, Jesus says this about the Samaritan. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him down on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So biblical mercy is more than just an attitude. It's an attitude that prompts us to do something. John MacArthur once wrote this, mercy is not the silent, passive pity that never seems to help in a tangible way. It is genuine compassion with pure, unselfish attitude that reaches out to help. You know, I look at genuine mercy like I do true love because it's more than words or vows. It is grace-filled love in action. In 1 John 3, Verse 17 through 18, it says this, But whoever has his world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Mercy is a visible thing. And genuine mercy involves interrupting our schedule and expending some of our own time, some of our energy, and yes, even some of our money. Mercy is seeing a man who is without food and giving him food. Mercy is is seeing a person who is begging for love and offering them love. Mercy is seeing someone who is lonely and offering them your company. Mercy is meeting a need and not just filling that need. To put it very simply, mercy is not a spectator sport. According to Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, here's the definition of mercy. The outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. Let me ask you, like I'll ask myself, do you embrace this particular beatitude? Do you act mercifully to people who are in need? Remember, Mercy is more than noticing. It is more than feeling. It's doing. Well, the fourth aspect of this beatitude that we see in this parable is this. Mercy embraces. I use the word embrace to say that mercy does not exclude. No matter who it is that is in need of mercy, no matter what their sin, we show them mercy anyway. In Jesus' parable, the man helping the Samaritan was helping the Samaritan. And the man that he was helping was his sworn enemy, a Jew. Jews hated their half-breed siblings or neighbors, the Samaritans. And history shows us that the feelings were mutual. Most Samaritans would have excluded this Jewish enemy. They wouldn't have felt for his pain much less acted on anything to help him. Most would have done like the priest and the Levite did, and they would have walked on to the other side of the street. And truthfully, at times we are, we are just as bad. I mean, we tend to limit the people who we want to show mercy to. Sometimes we only keep it within the household of faith when we need to take it out to those who don't have faith. 
When we are wronged or hurt, being merciful and forgiving just isn't something that pops into our mind. It's not the first thing that naturally comes to us. Instead, our first response is always to try to get back to those who hurt us, those who are unlike us. We don't care necessarily about those who are not a part of who we are or those who we disagree with, who we disagree with. You know, I don't like to get political ever from the pulpit. And the reason I don't do that is because we have a lot of different uh, political views that are represented in this church. Plus, the truth is I'm a minister and I am not a politician. But I have to say something. We need more mercy in the political world these days. I feel like both the left and the right literally live to hurt each other. Republicans and Democrats are, the kind, are kind of like the Jews and the Samaritans of the 21st century. They dislike each other. They hate each other. They are ruthless towards each other. And let me just say these actions that have been perpetrated verbally and uh, through social media and through the press that have been perpetrated by both Democrats and Republicans, Christians, that does not please God. If you carry the title of a believer, you've got to watch what you say. You've got to watch how you respond to people who are on the other side. We are called to, to, to feel and to act mercifully, mercifully towards all people, including people we vehemently disagree with. Jesus said in Luke 6, 32 through 33, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. He goes on in verse 35 and 36, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Patrick Green of San Antonio, Texas, had a long history of, of disliking and combating Christians all throughout his state. He was an outspoken atheist, and he filed complaints and lawsuits for over a 30-year period of time, accusing government officials of unconstitutionally endorsing Christianity. At one point, Green threatened to sue a particular Texas county about a yearly Christmas manger scene that was on the lawn of their building. In an interview at a local newspaper, Green said this. He said, my wife and I have never had a Christian do anything nice for us. But all of that changed in March of 2012 when the 63-year-old Green learned that he needed surgery for a detached retina. Green didn't have the money for the surgery, and he had to give up his cab driving job in order to have this procedure. Well, that's when Jessica Cry, a member of the Sand Springs Baptist Church, heard about Green's situation and she told her pastor, Eric Graham. Pastor Graham reached out to Green, and he asked him if there was anything that he could do for him. And Green said this. He said, if you really want to contribute something, we need groceries. Well, Green thought that if, some, if anything, he might see a $50 check, maybe $100. But a few days later, the church sent him a check for $400. More checks continued to follow. The total grew to over $3,000. And a flabbergasted green said this, and I quote, I thought I was in the twilight zone. These people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian should. I will be forever grateful because we were in a hole and needed help. And after that happened, rather than trying to remove that manger display, green said he would like to add his contribution, which was a star 
for the top of the nativity scene. He did say, however, you people can figure out how to plug it in. I love that story. Most of the time, our human nature is to fight back against the atheists of this world. We get angry with people who are, who are our enemies in this morality war that we fight day to day in this nation. But these Christ followers from Texas, they embraced their enemy. They literally showed him mercy. And that's the way it is with mercy. The more you give, the more you get. The more you understand how merciful God has been to you throughout your life, the more merciful you are towards others. And then the more opportunities that God gives you to share his mercy with others, it's a, it's a reoccurring cycle that continues to go on. And Jesus refers to this in our text when he declares that those who are merciful will receive mercy. The fact is, mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy for others comes from our experience of God's mercy for us. In Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, Portia says this, the quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven upon the earth below and is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Sounds to me like old Shakespeare was reading the Beatitudes when he wrote that. So let me ask you something this morning. Who in your little world needs mercy this morning? Is it your spouse? Is it a rebellious child? Is it a coworker? Maybe it's somebody who attends this church. I want to challenge you to ask God to help you answer that question right now. And then pray that he will allow you and help you to extend mercy. And if you have trouble remembering all of the things that God has done for you, ask him to remind you. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan is more than a picture of mercy. It's a picture of what God did on our behalf. God saw us. He noticed us in our misery and he took pity on us. He was moved with compassion towards us. He knew that sin had rendered us spiritually dead and utterly hopeless. He knew that he was the only one that had the power to bring about the remedy. So he got inside of our skin, so to speak, as I talked about earlier. He became like us. He participated in our sufferings to the point that he died on the cross for our sins. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. As I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. We are in a great position, church, to show mercy to other people. And let me just say, I know that what's going on in our country and in our world is not a surprise at all to our Heavenly Father. And furthermore, I believe with all my heart that everything happens for a reason. It happens for a purpose. So could this be God's way of setting us up to really shine as his followers as brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe he is literally putting the golf ball, setting it up on a tee and waiting for us to get up there and address that ball and hit it 300 yards straight down the fairway. That's my way of saying to you, let's not lose any opportunities 
to show mercy to others, especially those who are not in the household of faith, those who do not have the promises of God in their heart yet. When and if you do, you just might be putting yourself in the position to lead them to Jesus. And, and here's what I've been thinking about. It is possible that mercy is what opens the door for us to lead people to Jesus Christ. If you've never led someone to faith in Jesus, could it, because, could it be because you have not shown enough mercy to capture their attention of someone who was lost and someone who was in pain? What I'm trying to say this morning, convey to you, is this. We plead and we pray for mercy from God for ourselves on our own behalf while he is telling us in this beatitude those who show mercy will receive mercy. High Point family, I do not want you to simply think about mercy when pondering over these interesting days that we are in right now, but instead think about how well or how poorly you have utilized this wonderful tool that God has given you. It truly has the ability to change our world through relationships when we show people that we care enough and when, we, when, when mercy is exhibited in their situations. If we all mastered this particular beatitude and we were able to be merciful in all situations and in all people, whether within the household faith or out, it would be a game changer. So as I said earlier, we need to go from knowing these beatitudes to doing these beatitudes. I want to close in prayer this morning. And while I do, please don't just listen to the words that I speak. But take the time to pray to God yourself in your own words, with your own thoughts, the things that he's laid on your heart this morning. Ask Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit to let you not just to see the difficulties of the people around you, but to act upon them, to give you the capacity in your heart to be moved enough to act. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth in your word. I thank you for this, this sermon, which is powerful. Not the one that I preached, but the one that Jesus did. It truly has the capacity to change our world as we know it because it goes so against the way that we are normally wired to react. Christianity is, is countercultural. It is different. It demands things of us that, that others don't even think about. And that's what makes it so special. And so, God, I pray in the name of Jesus and the th through the power of your spirit, that you would enable each one of us to not just see the broken and the hurting and the many needs that are around us, but, Father, compel us to act. Put a yearning in our heart when we see things that are going on that need help, that we will respond, that we won't just walk by the other side and think someone else will help, but we will do what we can. Yes, it can be messy. Yes, it can be costly. But God, the blessings that flow from it are great and tremendous. And that's what you mean by when we show mercy, you give us mercy. So Father, help us to not just be Christians that know we are saved, that know we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But let us be Christians who act by showing mercy to all of those around us. Father, I pray that if anyone is listening to this message today, and do not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would pray a simple prayer to you today, identifying you as Lord, 
asking you to forgive them of their sins, to give them a new life. And Father, your word says that you'll cleanse them of all unrighteousness whenever they pray that prayer with sincerity in their heart. So Father, for anyone who doesn't know you today, who's crying out to you, Father, I thank you that you're saving them, you're giving them your salvation and your forgiveness. And I pray that when we gather back together again, they will come and join us and be a part of this church family. And we can help them as we minister to them to become stronger men and women of God. And for those of us, Lord, who already know you, again, make us merciful. Help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to look past our own needs, our own circumstances, to the needs of others. And Father, during this interesting time, give us opportunities to bless one another and to bless those who are around us in our neighborhoods. God, let us shine. Let this be a time where your church, your bride, shines brighter than ever. I believe that's what you're going to do. I believe that coming through this, Father, we're going to be different. We're going to be refined. We're going to have a new focus because we have seen firsthand that life is nothing without you. Nothing else matters but you. And I pray that my church family will lean into you now more than ever in profound ways and that you will profoundly show yourself true to them in ways that they've never seen before. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for my church family who are watching all over the city and some outside of the city. I ask your blessings upon them. I pray, pray peace in their homes. And God, I mostly pray that you give us opportunities to be a mercy-filled people and it would be exhibited in a way that will change people's lives and hearts. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before I leave you today, can I just remind you to be faithful in your giving to the church. You can still drop off your tithe and offering to our church office during the week, but you can also give online now. You can also give uh, with text. In fact, I, I sent you links and instructions this week at an email that we sent out to everybody whose email address we had. Also, let me remind you to try to stay in touch with, with each other. Reach out to your friends. Make sure that they're doing okay. And if not, and if not, do what you can do. Show mercy to your friends and those who you know and even those who you don't know during these difficult times. And here's one more thing. Please pray for those who are diligently working to find an answer for this virus in your prayers. I've been praying God daily that God would supernaturally provide insight to them, those who are working on this, to help to find a solution so that all this fear that people are dealing with can be removed. That's where it's got to start. God's got to, got to direct people in order for this to happen. And I, and I think we should be prayerful, not just for what's going on around us and our particular needs, but let's pray for those who have the knowledge and that God will bless with the knowledge to be able to find an end to this particular virus. I love you all. I want you to know that, that you are missed dearly. We miss meeting together with you, and I cannot wait until this place is full again and I can see your smiling faces here on Sunday morning. Until then, I want you to have a blessed week. And I want you to walk in mercy because as we've learned today, mercy will be measured back to you. God bless you. And we'll see you next week.